This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Simon, just so I can get my levels, if you could tell me what you had for breakfast. Ooh, uh, well, I've been eating since I woke up this morning, so I had the breakfast at the hotel, and then I went out with Alvin Pang for uh, a traditional Singaporean breakfast, and then uh, I came back and just seamlessly carried on eating uh, in the restaurant just next door. So uh, it, it would take too long for me to tell you what I had. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Umar Pagan Ampake Pagan. I have only just returned from the 2017 edition of the Singapore Writers Festival, where I managed to catch up with a bunch of fantastic writers and thinkers, my interviews with whom you will hear on the show in the weeks to come. Now, one of those individuals whom I spoke to was the phenomenal English playwright, poet and novelist, Simon Armitage. Hello, my name is Simon Armitage and I am a poet. Simon, I got here and I wanted to talk to you about your poetry. And then I came across something that I hadn't read at the bookshop, which was your book, Walking Home. And it was an absolute delight. So I'm going to talk to you about walking instead. For me, there is something uniquely English about pointless walking. The Americans have their long road trips by car. And every trip I've been to... To the UK, every time I've met an English person for absolutely no reason at all, they would just go, hey, do you want to go for a walk? And I'd be like, where are we going? And they'd be like, nowhere, we're just going for a walk. Talk to me about walking and the English. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Uh, I mean, I don't have enough... Because God knows we don't do it. Is that, is that true? Yeah, well, it's well, too hot, really. It's too hot, yeah. Um, I think there's definitely a, a tradition in Britain of, of walking off your lunch. So, uh, you know, you'll have a good meal and then you'll... You'll have a, 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 a turn around the park. Um, I don't know. Somebody said once that walking is somewhere between doing something and doing nothing. And, uh, and that's where I place it, really. So in some ways, uh, it's about killing time. And in some ways, it's about getting some gentle exercise. But uh, I associate it with, uh, you know, with, with contemplation and, and thoughtfulness. And it's pretty rare that I go out for a walk and don't come back uh, with with the makings of a of a poem. I mean, there's certainly a, a, a tradition of, of, of poets of, of, walking. Yeah, poets walking. I mean, you know, um, Wordsworth wandering lonely as a cloud would be a, an example of that. And, and I, I, I think historically there was an association between footsteps and the the, the foot in in metered verse. And I've heard other people talk about the relationship between iambics and the heartbeat. And of course, there's a slightly increased cardiovascular activity when you're walking. I, I, I don't know about any of that stuff. I, I just think it's a, um, it's a good space that opens up. Uh, you, you know, you're quite often on your own and the scenery is changing and your, your heartbeat is up a little bit and, and, and thoughts are generated. Yes, but there is, a, there is walking off your lunch and the casual walk, and then there is this 256-mile journey, which is the ultimate pointless walk, as you say in the book, via no path in particular, going absolutely nowhere. Why? You were 47 years old with a back problem. Why? Well, that was part of it. Uh, you know, I'd reached a, a certain age, and you know, I've always been relatively active and played a lot of sports. And poetry isn't exactly, uh, you know, a physical activity. 
and I, I, I'd become uh, perhaps a, a little bit chair-bound on occasions. And I suppose I, w- I was testing something of myself physically. Um, the walk, the Pennine Way, uh, is about 270 miles and pretty much comes past my parents' house. So it had always been part of my psychology uh, when I was growing up, and there was a tradition of giving people food and drink and shelter uh, as they arrived, almost as, as pilgrims and, and being kind to, to strangers on the path. And I think more than that, I felt as if I wanted to test poetry a little bit because I, I, I made the walk as a, a modern-day troubadour. I gave readings every night. It was a, a sort of three-and-a-half-week busking uh, project. And I, I was trying to live on my wits and maybe prove something to myself about you know, my poetic reputation, uh, that I'd, I'd developed enough of a reputation as a writer from when I'd stopped being a probation officer in the mid-'90s uh, to, to get by on my, on my wits and my, my verse. And what is it like doing something like that in this day and age? Because I figure it's a very romantic notion to have a troubadour knock on your door and read you a poem or sing you a song and you give them food and shelter. I feel that somehow in the 21st century, people are going to be a lot less amenable to letting a stranger in their home. You would think that. Uh, but actually, one of the things that I encountered was just a great deal of hospitality and, and generosity and a proof that even in small communities, or perhaps particularly in small communities, uh, there is an interest in arts and culture and, uh, and people wanting to invite strangers into to do their thing. I agree with you that it's, it's a romantic and an, an old-fashioned gesture, but I also think that um, anything like that these days, which is uh, either counterintuitive or goes against the grain, uh, and might be seen as either gimmicky or perverse or absurd, um, also has a, a political aspect to it as well, you know, that you are um, demonstrating a, a right to walk. I mean, there's an association in, in Britain between walking and trespassing Correct. and a, a asserting your right to, you know, uh, to ramble across common land. I think you are... Uh, making probably an environmental statement in taking three weeks to uh, to walk what you could do in a car in three hours. Yeah, and I think you you know you're aligning yourself probably uh, with you know those those people in the world who don't always have access to modes of transport and the, the costs that, that they incur. So um, yeah, it, it was um, multivalent as a, as a as a project, but um, not not just a, not just a, a sentimental. Uh, ramble across meadows and fields. And of course, there is the, I guess, added benefit of reconnecting with nature, especially being a poet or a writer of some sort. Like you said, being desk bound, we often forget the importance of stepping outside of our urban confines. I think when I set off, I probably thought of it as a nature book that I was, you know, embarking on. I, I was going to write about the... And you make some interesting geological points. Well, I've got a... a you know, a background in geography. I am a geography graduate, and I suppose I, it was an opportunity to put some of that vocabulary to to use. But I, I think it became uh, an opportunity for memoir, um, and I often find that being away from home provokes memory in a way that being at home doesn't. And I also think it became an, anthropolog- an anthropological project rather than uh, a book of nature writing. You know, I, I ended up writing about people, 
communities, uh, the small communities that I was walking into and out of every day, and even those little communities that formed as I was walking, you know, the six or seven people, strangers who'd turn up, uh, and, you know, we would all be best friends by by the end of the day and, and sharing uh, anecdotal intimacies. Every time I think about walking and I think about the walkabout, I think about, I guess, Aboriginal communities and how it's often a method of therapy. Mm. It's a method of rediscovering themselves or if they're facing any particular hardship, it's, it's like rehabilitation almost. Well, I, I definitely think it, it reminds you of your relationship with the outdoors and the earth, which, of course, uh, for thousands and thousands of years was a very important relationship. I mean, we, we, we've tended to neglect and, and even forget about that because we are encased now within technology and coming out from behind uh, the the phone screen and the laptop screen and the double glazing and getting out there into the world was was a big part of that. I mean, uh, I think you can... Um, you can deceive yourself by the extent to which you are reconnecting with with nature because uh, you know it's a, it's a slightly synthetic journey you know at the end of the day you have to go back and, and live in the contemporary world um, but and you it, also know that that's waiting for you at the end of your journey you do and uh, you know i wasn't trying to walk the song lines of britain and be <laughs> aboriginal in that sense and in fact i I was part of a panel discussion a couple of weeks ago where an Australian writer was talking about how she deplored um, the, 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 the white and Western portrayal of, of Aboriginal walking in a very romantic and sentimental way. Um, I th- I, I, you know, at, at the end of the day, I've got to hold my hand up and say, you know, that part, part of a project like this is, is um, pretty selfish, you know, I, I wanted to spend some time with, with my own thoughts and, and see what happened. Which is something we don't get to do. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up getting out from behind that screen because I think there is a lost art of doing nothing and how that inspires us to write, to think. We're not allowed to think. We're not allowed to get bored. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I was in Hong Kong a few years ago, and I was talking to some students there about, you know, the mechanics of writing poems, and they wanted to know where poems came from. And I was saying, well, I wish I knew I'd, I'd, go, and get, <laughs> I'd go and get more. But I, I, I said uh, at that point that, for me, daydreaming was very important. Just letting thoughts tumble on, lead to another thought, and eventually an idea came along. And uh, they were saying they just didn't have time to daydream and that, you know, they had very full <laughs> days, uh, you know, getting up at five, private tuition, school, private tuition, after school, uh, tired. And, uh, you know, I would have added to that that whatever spare time they did get, they would pull their phones out of their pocket and, and, and start Facebooking or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think for my generation anyway, that relationship with, with daydreaming and uh, doing nothing, as you put it, is, is very, very important because they're the spaces in which imaginative thinking opens up. And Simon, have you fallen prey to the temptations of Facebook and Twitter and all of that stuff? Yes and no. Uh, I'm, I, I was sort of, you know, the, the boy with his finger in the dike for, uh, for a long time holding it all back. 
The, the only social media that I'm involved with is Instagram. And I suppose I like it because it's slightly outside of my field, so it doesn't really involve language. Uh, it's just a, a, a gallery account of the things that I've been doing. It, it, it doesn't take much time or thought, or I don't put much time and thought into it. And I, I quite like that interplay between photograph and caption. Uh, you know, I, I don't see that as being completely disassociated from from what I do. But no, I don't do I don't do Facebook. In fact, before I came out here, um, somebody who uh, was hoping to meet me said she'd been chatting with me on Facebook, and I said, "Well, I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know who you've been talking to." <laughs> but 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 surely, Twitter must appeal with its 140 characters to a poet, especially. Well, it has a relationship uh, with uh, intense language and compact language and there are people writing poetry on twitter as far as i know and uh you know it would certainly seem to have a relationship with forms like haiku and uh you know another another you know brief uh presentations of of language but um you know it's it's just it's just not my thing i, did, I didn't grow up with it i i grew up with the idea of, of carving letters by hand and publish them, publishing them in, in books, and I'm I'm very comfortable with that. You know, I, I'm I'm happy to keep uh, keep plowing away in that direction. The other thing that came across when I was reading um, your book was this idea of getting lost, because that too is something that we are just unable to do. I mean, if you live in an urban environment, you are constantly connected, and you're an idiot if you get lost because you've got access to everything at your fingertips, and yet. It's not just romance, but there is a sense of necessity in getting lost from time to time. Well, it's certainly true that, you know, we don't often find ourselves in that position anymore because we've, we've got the technology in our pockets to, you know, to, to get us out of any, any predicament. Which I, is amazing when you think about it. It is amazing. It's <laughs> take, it takes, actually, it's taken a lot of stress out of everyday living. And, uh, you know, I, I've noticed in the car now with the sat-nav that are quite often just punch in the, you know, the, the letters and I'll be there and then I'll be home without quite knowing where I've been. And I, I lament uh, that to a certain extent because I've always prided myself on having a, you know, a good lodestone inside me and figuring out how to, how to navigate and, and so on and so forth. But um, that, that sense of being lost, you know, I'm not sure it's a good thing, but it, it, it's become unusual. And any unusual sensation is worth exploring. The only time before that I, that I could remember being lost was when I was in Japan the first time. The only time I've been in Japan. And just, you know, not being able to navigate because everywhere looked very similar to me. And not being able to read the alphabet either. Of course. And I, and I quite enjoyed it. You know, just I just sort of gave myself up to the space I was in. But these things about daydreaming getting lost, being bored, thinking, they seem absolutely crucial in the life of a poet, walking even. I would say so. I don't know whether it's a, a generational thing and um, it's, it's unnecessary to, to younger people. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't presume to speak on, on their behalf. But for me, poetry has always been a consequence of, of sort of goofing off, you know, of... of, of contemplation is to give it a more sophisticated term than it, than it probably <laughs> deserves. But um, just, just having some time out and, uh, and letting the, the cogs turn and, and, and the mind hum. Speaking of goofing off, the book is also unexpectedly quite funny. 
I wasn't expecting it to be as funny as it is. And in, I mean, in, in crafting this book, you, you also talk about, I guess, your experiences as uh, growing up and encountering these individuals. And I was wondering if, if there were any particular stories that stood out in your mind of the people you came across in your youth when they came by your house. There was a guy who knocked on the door uh, one year and he was, I, I remember him as being elderly. I mean, I was young, so everybody was elderly at that point. And uh, he needed uh, a drink, first of all, and then that became something to eat. And I think we maybe even invited him to pitch his tent in the garden. And, uh, you know, so he was just somebody who turned up one day and left the next day. But we used to get uh, a Christmas card from him every year after that. And it wasn't really Christmas until this, this card arrived you said for like 30 years yeah and um i don't think we you know we ever saw saw him again uh, but he, he became part of our psychology really just as the arrival of those walkers in the village they were they were a, a, a migratory species so you know as soon as the weather started to improve uh, you know may time uh, they would start appearing over the horizon and i think i say in the book that they look like from a distance and in silhouette, they looked like astronauts because they they had these uh, big packs on their back and they and they would they would come over the the horizon and drop down into the village and by that time they were pretty much exhausted and a little bit haunted because they just walked over the Peak District, which is a pretty terrifying place. Uh, before I let you go, the idea of you doing this journey in an unusual way because you were actually walking home. And I think there's a, real, there's a real impact in that, especially given at the age you were doing it at. Uh, because I can't help but think, late 40s, early 50s, was there something of a midlife crisis happening? And, 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 and did you come out of it on the other side different in any way? No, I indulged my midlife crisis by reforming a band uh, that I'd been <laughs> in when I was 18. So we, uh, we started playing gigs again and we made an album. Uh, whether it was part of that, I'm, I'm not sure. There, were, there was certainly an element of putting my uh, you know, aching body on trial. Um, but I, I, I think it was just more a case of the Pennine Way always having been there in my life and being a talking point in the house. And uh, also, you know, it, it offered itself very naturally as the spinal narrative for a, for a book. And it's been pointed out to me now, I don't think I realised it at the time, how often I use journeys as narratives in books, in, including some of the dramatizations and translations that I've, I've, I've done as well of the Odyssey and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And uh, it's probably just because I'm a bit crap at structure. And, uh, you know, with, with a journey, the structure is a given. And uh, you can just sort of colour in the middle bits. Are you planning to do this again? I mean, I mean, this is, it's something different. It's something unusual. It's a bit of a travel log. Is it something that, you're, that excites you? I, I did it again. I, uh, I mean, at the end of that book that you talk about, Walking Home, I, I pretty much promised uh, not, not, to, not to do anything so stupid again. But three years later, I don't know whether I just got itchy feet or sort of restlessness about writing. And I, I set off again and I walked the north coast of the southwest coast path in Britain. So this is from Minehead in Somerset down to Land's End. And then I overshot at Land's End and went onto the Scilly Isles. And I walked between some of the Scilly Isles at low tide and, and wrote a similar book. And again, you know, sort of did it uh, busking each night. But, but that was it, I think. I've, I've, I've pretty, I think I've pretty much hung up my, my boots now. I, I still walk. Well, I don't walk. I kind of wander around. 
Um, and I, I may do another walk and try and represent that in poems. Uh, but I haven't got much further than just um, scratching my head about it. Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Simon Armitage. He is the author of many, many wonderful poems, but but if you want to read more about his walks, I'd highly recommend both his books, Walking Home and Walking Away, which I'm sure you can find at all good bookstores. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.